Welcome, everybody, to a new series of podcasts that we are calling Stories from Ditra, where we dive a little deeper into the mission space of WMD, or Weapons of Mass Destruction. This is our premiere podcast, and it will take us back in time, nearly 20 years ago, to the Voss Island, formerly located in the RLC. The former island's territory is now split between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. What does Ditcher have to do with Voss Island? Well, the Cooperative Threat Reduction Directorate has the Biological Threat Reduction Program, or BTRP as you might hear it called, which conducted a cleanup mission at the island that eliminated more than 12 tons of weaponized anthrax left behind by the Soviet Union's Biological Weapons Program during the Cold War. It was quite a mission, and one to be proud of for the sake of the health and safety of the people around the world. And today, I'm joined by two guests who were on the ground facilitating the elimination and cleanup of the dangerous materials. With me today is Doug Gorsling, who still works with the BTRP at Ditra, but at the time he served as a military linguist assisting with the Russian translations where necessary. Also here today is Eric Kasper, who is a presidential management fellow for BTRP, working as a deputy project manager on chemical and biological weapons. Gentlemen, thanks for being here today to discuss this unique and important mission. I want to start with a simple and obvious question. How'd you know the Russians left behind dangerous materials that were considered to be WMD? The information that we had, again, was that uh, 1979 Sverdlovsk uh, accidental release. The, the Russians were afraid that they were going to get caught with their pants down with regards to the PWC, so they shipped everything down to Vos Island, which, is, which was, at that point in time, uh, their biological weapons testing range. You know, akin to Dugway for us. Um, so they, they moved the material down there and buried it for long-term disposal. Um, and since that was the Soviet Army's um, biological weapons testing facility, there really couldn't have been anybody else. They had satellite imagery, yeah. basically, that said, the, we see these where there's been material placed to the ground here. Go use these grid coordinates and go sample it and see if you think there's something there. Were you guys there together? Mm-hmm. There were two trips, just okay. so it's clear. There was like this front end reconnaissance where we, is it still on the ground? Can we find it? How you know dangerous is it? Especially dangerous. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> and then we, uh, uh, you know, then we made a follow up plan. So then, these guys were more operational. I was the civilian guy, so we helped award a contract to a, you know a, a vendor to go out there with us to do a lot of the work. Okay. So it was. So who was our first? Are we guys there? We're the same time. Same time. Same no, reconnaissance yeah. mission and the execution. We're okay. Both together. So when you first got word that you were going to go down there, you're going to go explore, assess, maybe destroy. What'd you think? Well, I'm like Doug, who have been in that world. That was amazing, right? <laughs> amazing or scary? No, it was amazing. You know, yeah. We were talking about it. you're in your 20s. You think this stuff is is kind of thrilling. You're going to go tackle this big problem at the time. It was. Yeah, I mean, it we're, was fascinating. We're, late 20s, early 30s, and indestructible. So, I mean, you, you do think about the risk, but you're also just enthused by, by the adventure of it. Sure. Yeah, it was, it was incomprehensibly exciting. Right. And, I mean, it, even then, you know, it, the uniqueness of it, you're going to be the only person that does this, the only group of people that handle a problem of this sort. So that's pretty interesting. I assumed there were enough smart people around us that they would make sure we did everything safely. Right. But I, I think that a lot of that was really born of the um, the coordination meetings that we had beforehand, um, both the intel briefs as well as the, the coordination with uh, you and, and the team lead and the rest of the SMEs, the subject matter experts who went out with us. I think there was a high degree of confidence that this was not going to be you know, some crazy junket uh, to our, our old device. This was really a, a team of extremely competent, driven, professional people who were going to 
take care of each other throughout. We were starting to spin up work down, you know, in Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, all those areas at the time. So that was also, I mean, this was in retrospect, we knew, you know, there was dangerous stuff around. And so that was a, a push to go into that area yeah. to, well, we don't want a third party to get access to this. Not so much the rushes. It was like, this is there. Now there's a peninsula that you could just simply walk or drive across to get to. Yes. Yeah, that, that was really the driver of what happens if an asymmetric group from just south of the border in Uzbekistan simply drove up there, you know, the, the 10 hours it would take, walk across land border, find the stuff, dig it up, take it back, and, and do what they're going to do. Why didn't that happen? How did the U.S. get there quicker? There were scavengers out there, and that was part of it. It's just get there before they someone, someone could walk across to an area and, and then end up with it on their shoes, and you don't know if it's... An accidental endemic, uh, something that's just there, or if this is truly, you know, weaponized bad stuff. The other part of that is, I mean, we had some of the smartest experts in the world on our <coughs> team too. I mean, we had guys that we had the you know, person who run Plum Island for us as part of our advisory team yeah. helping us. So I mean, they weren't looking at me for the answers. We were looking at those guys <laughs> for to make sure we were doing things the right way. You got on the plane, you flew out, you kind of had your apprehension, your excitement, whatever, um, and then you get on ground and you start operating, you start seeing the environment. How, how did, Was that the same expectation versus reality, or how would you compare, contrast? I, th I think when we first put boots on the ground, for me at least, it, it was uh, surreal. I mean, it, it's very difficult to articulate or, or to understand, understand for somebody who wasn't there. Um, just a completely desolate ghost town in every sense of the word but not on a Hollywood set, it just kept on going. Um, you know, there, there were, the sea had retreated, I don't know, two miles or so oh, but, yeah. um, by that time. So you'd literally walk past just hulking ships sitting in the middle of a desert with not a drop of water anywhere to be seen. You're like, what kind of video game nonsense is this? First night, one of our team members, as we were setting up our camps, as, as the sun started to set, we had to start digging fire pits. And one of our team members unearthed a, a rather large uh, sand viper in the hole he was digging. <laughs> he screamed, went into the air about four or five feet. It was a good jump. And at that point, we're kind of like, Christ, you know, it's not just the weapons. It's the animals and it's the, um, the pesticides and everything else. Everything else that is out here is just not friendly to us. There were uh, feral dogs who hadn't seen humans in at least two generations. Um, yeah, it was one of those places where you didn't go anywhere without a friend. Nowhere. Right, yeah. And I remember being told to, to buy these snake boots. And I'm just like, I'm sure they're teasing me because I'm a civilian, right? These boots that come up to your knees. And, you know, I think the first day I, we wore, I wore regular hiking boots. But by the end of that, I was like, oh, maybe these are, are a wise investment, right? Maybe we really will have a problem by the end of this trip with something. And, yeah, it was it was one of those kind of adventures where you're like, this is surreal. I mean, to me, still the the it seems very Soviet. Just to be like, we're done with these ships. We're just gonna leave them here. Yeah, not our problem anymore. <laughs> Someone will come clean it up. So there were two trips. How long was each trip? Were they about the same? You know, it was about a week, ten days for the first uh, recon mission, and then we were out there for two and a half, three months for the uh, elimination mission. I don't know if anybody left, but then some people, <laughs> well, you're military, <laughs> and some people, I think, stayed at the very end, the contractors and things to close out stuff. And there was a lot of testing that had to be yeah. done every day, too, to make sure you know we had done what we were supposed to, people were safe. So 
had to be, you know, your safety guys had to be there the whole trip. Oh, yeah. Every day at the end of the day, we got swabbed and they'd run a PCR test overnight. And every morning it was, okay, you're still good. Keep working. Were you ever worried about that? Or were you just like, I'm doing my job? I was worried about it. I mean, yes, it, it's an absolute possibility when you're doing this job. Um, but, you know, it was, it was going to get done. And if I got sick, I had the absolute confidence in the entire team around me to you know, do what needed to be done to take care of me. Did anybody get sick? No. I got uh, well, just, God, like, that's... sick um, <laughs> based on foodborne <laughs> illnesses, right? Fair enough. And I was worried. I mean, I, I thought they were going to have to medevac like, me dying. out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that this was is bad. not like, the I place to be. And, uh, How do you get sick off MREs? I don't know. I have a like constitution, I guess. I hadn't been trained by the U.S. government in the way you had. But, yeah, the other part of it is uh, I went through the special immunization program up in, mm. at USAMRID, right? And and that was also another piece of this that was, yeah, especially for me, I mean, I trusted in, in the, this is something that lots of people go through, but it, that part was intimidating, the six anthrax shots, of, you know. How your body's going to react to that long term and all that, just so we could be out there for two and a half months. That was, that was real. Yeah, the, <laughs> getting the chest X-ray before I went out, so they could say when I came back whether something had happened. That made it feel real too. Yeah, I forgot about you. Got sick out there. I don't know what that was, but that was a nasty cold. Mm -hmm. You were laid up for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned kind of the environment, the animals, uh, the somewhat dangerous pathogens. Um, what kind of conditions, like what, what did you sleep in and eat in? Did you just, was it just MREs? Were you sleeping on the ground? Was there hotels? So we, we all brought tents with us. Um, I guess not ironically, as I recall, the higher ranking had the bigger tents and the lower ranking had the smaller tents. <laughs> not a two-man tent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then it was cots and sleeping bags inside of there. Um, and I do remember the first night, uh, one of the senior military folks got me like, don't forget to check your bag. Oh, what? Mm. Check your bag. Oh man, I didn't think about that. End of the morning, check your shoes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it was tents and sleeping bags the whole way through. Uh, for us, as well as, as I recall, uh, the entire contractor team, uh, we had um, a decent size uh, Uzbek labor force that came out to work with us too. And they they housed in a GP50 uh, tent, as I recall, just a general, right. general purpose, kind of big tent from the military. Uh, but yeah, there, there was no housing whatsoever no plumbing no nothing we had to build an outhouse uh, we had a 50 50 gallon drum underneath it we had to burn it with diesel every other day uh, it was it was rough in there showers what showers what? <laughs> no I, actually we did eventually because the, the way we actually eliminated the material uh, called for a large amount of water so eventually we did as i remember build kind of a uh, i don't know a, a lean-to shower with a water bladder but it was not every day, and it wasn't warm. About how many people total were on both these missions? Was was it the same people? Was it hundreds, or was it just a couple couple well, dozen? First trip was rather small. I mean, 10, 15? Yeah, maybe 10. Yeah. And then uh, on the follow-on, that's where mm -hmm. you're, we're interacting with contractors and locals. And so I would say 100? It was probably five to seven DITRA personnel contractors probably numbered 15 or so and then a 50 to 75 person labor force right okay. something like that what did the locals how they react when you came in and saved the day or were they just like whatever yeah 
I think it was more the latter. I don't I think, think they really saw us as to them. Safe. Yeah, exactly. Did they recognize the danger that was kind of around them? Well, I mean, we had two levels. You have kind of the scientists we engage with who, who were well aware, and sure. and then you had your local workforce who I think is mostly interested in having the job. So sure. I think you had two tiers there, and uh, I, it was it was one of these issues that. Uh, evolved over time where you know it come back up at times and you know Kazakhstan wants hey why don't you come back out and, and look again and see if there's anything that's moved off the island or you know if there's any rodents that has picked up whatever you know so it, it was important to the scientist level engagement yeah I've, I've read articles um, about the locals being a little spooked by uh, the island and what it represented and what it used to be but I didn't see that uh, and the personnel who are working out there. And that's not to say that it doesn't exist. I just think that when you're talking to, you know, such an economically disadvantaged community, when the idea of, of a solid paycheck for three months comes around, you take it. okay, I'm in. Is there any surprises when you did the first trip versus the second? You know, was there more than you thought? Well, for me, we got to see the facilities, the infrastructure around it. I mean, we target this, you know, these are these dirt pits that we're talking about. But there's this four-story building where research and, and work was done and you walk through it and it was scary. yes and creepy and all those things when you see it and uh, things were a, a lot of it was still there some of it might be in broken condition but just you know boxes and boxes of gas mask or test files or cages and things and so that made it to me both more interesting and more uh scary right because it wasn't just oh we just dumped this in the dirt here and we left i mean it was an ongoing big project and you got that sense once you had gone through gone through the property yeah and um i'll just elaborate on one of those points uh, the cages um uh, they were too small for a horse but too big for a chimp uh, but they're just about the right size for a human uh you know if that was the intended purpose we don't know we we don't we weren't there at the time but it was kind of terrifying to contemplate sure. uh, what you were looking at. Um, and and I, I think that uh, Eric is absolutely right. You know, looking at the pictures uh, sitting here in Virginia was interesting. Um, when the sun rose and you actually took a look at what was all around this place, it was a whole different ballgame of understanding what you were standing in the middle of. And, and I think, if I remember right, and I may be wrong on this, I don't think we really explored the area too much on that first trip. I think that was really something we dug into on the second trip. Yeah, the, the test range was, I mean, interesting. We saw uh, skeletal remains of, of animals in there, so it was clear that you're launching some kind of bomblet or, or something for you know an offensive purpose. So you could look at it, see the results, see where it spread, and those kind of remnants were left behind. Did you guys have to clean up that stuff too, or was it just the... No, we were commissioned just for the pits. The, the biological material was all we were commissioned engage upon um, you know, we, we came across like like Eric said uh, spent munitions I think there was a, a couple of 500 pounders I think there were 500 pounder shells that we found out there so with that in mind as you were walking through and first time seeing these kind of things um, did that change or I don't know amplify your kind of um, opinion I guess of like the Russians you know and oh, it, it was you got a sense of the intent, right? I mean, you don't put this much energy into something without having plans to mobilize this under some condition, right? To yeah. use this at some point, right? And so 
that's real. When you start to combine it with these other infrastructure things and Stepton Gorse and other places we work, then you can really see the grand scale of what was going on there and how far removed, you know, how much longer this project had gone on than in others in the rest of the world after the, you know, the conventions and stuff and treaties. Yeah, I think my, my perception, uh, having seen what we saw up there, was probably two-tiered. Uh, you know, if I speak Russian, I studied Russian, and I'm fairly familiar with Russian history and culture. Um, and as I've always understood it, the folks who were doing the actual work at these facilities at uh, Stepanakorsk, at Balls Island, at Sverdlovsk, et cetera, et cetera, they truly believed that they were defending the, the Russian homeland because they truly believed that America was doing the same research on the same materials at the same time, and, and if they didn't do it, there was going to be a disparity. So for, for, for that tier, I'm kind of like, my head just hangs like, damn, you guys got screwed. But for the higher echelons of the intelligence uh, community, who really, I, I believe, I presume, should have known that we weren't doing this, but they were just feeding a lie to their communities to, to make this project, this massive, massive project move, those people have got a little animus for Fair enough. So can you talk a little bit about the actual cleanup then? Because I have, I have no visual of how you guys possibly clean some of this stuff up. You mentioned pits. Like, what'd you do? Well, the original plan, um, was it the 50-gallon jumps was the original plan? I think so. Yeah. Uh, the original plan, there was a number, a large number of 50-gallon drums out there that we had planned uh, on, on cutting apart and putting the uh, uh, hepachloride into... Uh, hepachloride is used to neutralize almost any biological material. Uh, so put the earth in there, put the hepachloride in there, uh, mix it together, and, and everything kind of neutralizes. But what was the problem with that? There, we couldn't. I don't know that I have an answer. I was also back here, so you saw. I was going to say you see a lot of American ingenuity here because it was often <laughs> we tried this, it didn't work. We tried this, yeah. and, and and it's it's fair because. It, it's not like we were building on, this is the process to get rid of, you know, buried anthrax in a remote island. We and it's were, not like we had a Caterpillar store down the road to buy equipment from no. them and get it there. So, you know, we, we had brought a bunch of Soviet-era, three of them, I think, um, backhoes uh, onto the, the island to help us with the job. And I can't remember why the clamshelling didn't work uh, on a large scale, but it didn't. So plan B was to dig large trenches uh, into the earth next to basically each and every one of these pits line it with uh, a plastic polyethylene, something like that, plastic sheets, large plastic sheets, fill it with water, which is why we had a huge water bladder uh, moved out to the island, um, water and hepachloride as a slurry, and then we'd just move the earth from the, the casket, from the grave of, of anthrax into that pool of hepachloride water, let it sit for 24 hours. <clears throat> Our science team would test it. Was it 24 hours or longer? I want to say 24. Yeah, at least a day. But then test it, you know, take three or four tests out of it to ensure that there's no biological agent remaining in there, and then put it back where we found it. Okay. So how do you, uh, how did you verify that you were, that you cleaned all of it up? Uh, we were just, we had, at the beginning, we had done core sampling around to kind of identify where we, where we thought it was and where it was, and that's where the, we brought a team out that could do sampling, and some of that was also sent back eventually, I think. But they could, uh, you know, you take a grid and you can say, okay, this is where everything should be, right? And you can maybe work outside of that by a certain percentage and feel fairly confident that you had it all. 
Yeah, and we had brought a uh, Connex laboratory out there where they actually did their own testing, um, the testing of ourselves as well as the samples out of the slurry pits to ensure that there was nothing left before we put it back. Okay. Was this somewhat of a unique mission for the U.S.? Was it a first? Probably a first for anyone. I don't, I don't, think I don't know anyone else, else has done anything like this. I mean, you, uh, the Brits had to uh, clean up their island, which was some of, you know, we, we took that into consideration, but again, it was it was different. You know, this was uh, a very virulent strain that we had believed to be weaponized that we wanted to get out of the ground and make sure that no one else could. And that's why I was saying, you know, when plan A didn't work, we went to plan B and then you went to plan C until eventually, I mean, we were gonna be there until the problem was solved, basically. Yeah, I don't know of any other undertaking uh, like this one. Eric brought up the, the island uh, off the United Kingdom, uh, but that is fundamentally different, I think, just in proximity um, of those those two uh, challenges. You know, something that's sitting off the border of, of England and, and the sea is certainly a risk that you want to address as as quickly as possible. Something sitting, you know, a ten-hour drive away from a war zone with Islamic fundamentalists, um, you know, banging around there—that's a whole different level of let's get this done. Let's get this done right now. And some of that concern, even though we felt we were the ones who know it, was that brain drain, is that what if a scientist who had been involved in the project decided to sell that information for ten or $50,000 to the highest bidder, well, then it would become a pretty urgent you know, mission to you know, get to there and make sure that no one else could get it. So that was part of the driver. It seems like you guys got it cleaned up pretty quickly, don't you think? A couple months? All things being equal, I thought it was pretty fast. Yeah. So overall, um, pretty successful mission. Uh, looking back, was there anything you would have done differently or, or would have suggested done differently other than like not get sick and watch out for snakes? But just op operationally or anything, you know, anything that you would have done different? Honestly, given the limitations of what was available out there to us and the exigency of the requirement, I think we did a damn good job, uh, honestly. Nobody died. The job got done. Right, that's a solid win. Yeah, I'm proud of it. Was there ever any reporters that showed up or media that showed interest that you guys were able to engage with, or did they just probably talk to locals or something? We had in our staging area. We when we were in Nakus, I remember oh, a lot right. of the locals wanted to come meet us, and we weren't thrilled with that as we were heading <laughs> out. That we, we didn't really want to meet anybody at that time. Uh, no, I think a lot of the stuff you can Google all happened after the fact, after we had left. A lot of those guys had gone out and, you know, hey, look what we found is this island. And we're like, yeah, we've been there. So <laughs> it was one of those kind of feelings. But yeah. Was it, so I guess, was it um, kind of a secret mission at the time until it was complete? Or was it Barely, just, it right. Was, I mean, we were operating. There was less internet back then anyway. So. Right, right. I mean, it, yes, it wasn't something we advertised at all. We didn't advertise this as a success for... Yeah. Until now, I guess. I mean, in some ways, we didn't talk about it. Yeah. I was always like, yeah, that's that's that, and we just kind of moved on from it. I, I will say one thing that um, I, Eric is absolutely right, that the people trying to um, interact with us on our way out there, that was kind of concerning. We were, we were definitely trying to be, uh, to put it politely, aloof uh, and, and not engaging in that. But when we got back, I do recall uh, some interactions with the locals. Matt, Matt was uh, the contractor who had logistics uh, rent support uh, in Nakus, and when we got back, I mean, he 
put out a, a freshly slaughtered lamb or goat, I guess it was, uh, for us. And there was definitely some locals who uh, worked with him that, that we had a chance to interact with. And I, I felt like there was, you know, not much at all out there, uh, but a sincere amount of, of hospitality and um, you know, gratitude for from the few folks we met there who at least had a rudimentary understanding of what we had done. Always, I mean, always on every uh, mission I've been involved with, it, it has been uh, collegial and the teams are very uh, much, you know, supportive of each other. Yeah. And, you know, cross country is very successful. It's always been. Do you think the Russians, like, once they left and then the U.S. came in and started cleaning their mess up, do you think they cared? Yes. Oh. Why? Yes, I think they absolutely care because concerned and frankly embarrassed I me mean, that this was them getting caught with their pants down on the BWC. How does that mission, it's 20 years ago now, right, almost, I mean, how, how does that compare to some of the other things you've done with the agency or you with your career field? Does it stand out at all or is it just... Oh, I definitely. It, does it? That's probably one of the, the bigger things. I guess after that, it was just a glide slope down for me. <laughs> but no, I mean... Peaked way too early. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... At, at, for CTR, I think it's fascinating if you kind of put the picks together of, you know, um, the Cape Ray and the work we did in Chucha and some of these other big projects. There's a lot of work that's been cleaned, the world's messes that have been cleaned up. So, absolutely, that's, uh, this was a big one in that, in that, in that arena. Probably in the top three of, of things I've done in my lifetime. Eric's absolutely right. There, there's such a panoply of unique opportunities to really make an impact coming out of an organization like this. Uh, you know, demilitarizing uh, Stepnogorsk, uh, reorienting Tabaknila uh, in, in Georgia. The, the bell got rung on the international stage by our partners, who we provided capacity to for diagnostics and sequencing. And, you know, if, if we hadn't done that, the, our partners at Chua Longhorn in, in Thailand most certainly, I, I presume, would have been able to do it themselves with something, with, with some sort of resource, because they're extremely smart and, and driven uh, professionals. But it was our, our assistance, our, our capacity development that resulted in them being able to do that as quickly as they did. So yeah, it's, it's, there's no shortage of, oh my, moments uh, out of an organization like this. And going back, and I don't know if I can talk about it technically adequately, maybe you can, but when you said, would the Russians be bothered by this and we we were able to characterize and sequence and know that this is just not a normal strain of anthrax and it was one of it was one of the worst forms and it had been available to them for weaponization and other purposes so yeah I mean that accountability is there whether it's in the public record or not it's still it's still known by the DOD well, gentlemen, that wraps up our time. This was fascinating. I'm so glad you guys were able to sit down and reminisce and talk about this particular subject and the work you guys did there. You should be proud. Uh, I'm proud of the agency that we do this kind of work and that you guys are still around to talk about it and, and share the good, the bad, and, and everything in between. So thanks again for taking the time and maybe we're able to reach back out to you about some other projects throughout the agency and join us for another podcast. Thanks. To hear more podcasts, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. You can find out more about DITRA at DTRA.mil.